Today on Reparations in Action. It's created by the U.S., it's maintained, it's built, they pay the people well. It goes on not only in Haiti, but all throughout Latin America, the Caribbean, Africa. You're listening to Reparations in Action. Reparations now! Uhuru. You're listening to the White Lies Shattered podcast and FM radio show. My name is Jamie Simpson, and I am the host of White Lies Shattered which broadcasts on Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. White Lies Shattered, also known as Reparations in Action, is a program of white solidarity with Black Power. Currently, we are in a podcast series exposing the insidious lies that we learn as white or European people about the nature and origin of America and the current social system. We believe reparations to African people is the key question of our times and is one that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we'd like to salute Black Power 96, where this show is aired and recorded for our podcast. Black Power 96 is a radio station that is not just explaining the world, but changing it. You can get the app for Black Power 96 on Google Play or the Apple App Store and listen wherever you are located. Today, we are summing up a recent New York Times article titled The Ransom, The Root of Haiti's Misery, Reparations to Enslavers. And this is a piece about the colonial plunder of Haiti that followed their victorious revolution. Joining us today is African People's Solidarity Committee chairwoman and author of the book Overturning the Culture of Violence, Penny Hess. Uhuru and welcome back, Chairwoman Penny. Thank you, Jamie. It's it's really great to be here and it's it's really excellent to to be able to talk about this article that was in the New York Times this past week that has attempted to sum up what Chairman O'Malley Shatella has called the colonial mode of production in its own way. To show the brilliant victory of enslaved, brutalized, colonized African people who, by 1804, had defeated Napoleon's army, which would be the equivalent of defeating the U.S. Army today, and who won self-government, national liberation, as an anti-colonial struggle that was also the first successful workers' revolution in the world well before any other socialist revolution and one that implemented a real socialist agenda that was incredibly visionary and before its time. So it's very powerful to read this and also to know that It is an example, again, of this colonial mode of production that Chairman O'Malley Shatella talks about. And Chairman O'Malley Shatella and the African People's Socialist Party are the only ones who have put out some of the ideas that are here um, in this for years. Right. So we're talking about this series on Haiti that was put out by the New York Times that was published about a week ago. Today that we're recording is uh, Monday, May 30th, 2022. And, and this article that comes out shows the massive wealth that France and the U.S. stole 
from Haiti, you know, that, that this was theft, armed theft. And we want to start, we want to preface this episode with a clip from a webinar uh, from January of uh, this year of 2022 called Haitians at the Border, U.S. Out of Haiti, down with colonialism. And this is a webinar on the situation that happened earlier this year in Texas, where Africans from Haiti were being beaten down by the border patrol. So let's go now to Chairman Omali Yeshatela. While we will talk and have talked up to now about the uh, various assaults that's being made on African people in Haiti, uh, while we talk about uh, what happened uh, under uh, the, the bridge in, in Del Rio, uh, uh, Texas, and what's happening at the border, uh, 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 the, the, the illegitimate uh, uh, border of uh, 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 California and uh, San Juan and, uh, and uh, uh, California, uh, the, the fact is that uh, nothing is extraordinary that we've talked about here. When we talk about uh, what happened with the uh, U.S. Uh, invasion of Haiti uh, that uh, resulted in stealing uh, everything uh, from uh, the Haitian uh, 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 treasury and, and taking that to New York, uh, the, uh, the first uh, international embargo, uh, uh, certainly in this hemisphere, that was imposed on anybody uh, uh, that was initiated against Haiti to force Haiti to pay what they characterize as reparations uh, uh, for the uh, theft, uh, uh, for taking back our, our own power, our own labor, our own humanities, uh, et cetera. Uh, uh, this is just part of uh, what we uh, recognize to have occurred from, from, uh, from uh, Don, uh, from, from uh, Baby Doc uh, uh, and, and Papa Doc Duvalier, uh, 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 all of these things. Uh, uh, which we are treating uh, most often as extraordinary should not be considered extraordinary at all. The presence of uh, Black people uh, uh, in this, this island uh, that has come to be known as Haiti uh, was the extraordinary act. Uh, the fact is that uh, in the process of developing a whole new uh, world economy, uh, Europe attacked Africa. Europe attacked Africa and brought Africans uh, into uh, this island, onto this island we call Haiti, uh, from uh, various locations on the continent of Africa. And before these Africans got to that island, they were not Haitians. And in fact, this was something uh, that would happen uh, with the revolution. Uh, the fact is that they were, uh, they, we were uh, groups of people who had been rounded up and, and brought uh, to this island to, to make resources uh, for for France and ultimately for Europe. And this has been talked about and discussed uh, with uh, some detail throughout, throughout this process. And it was Africans uh, who, upon achieving uh, our liberation, uh, did not uh, characterize ourselves, did not name ourselves as, as uh, Franco-Afros or Afro-French, uh, something to that extent. Uh, we took the name of the uh, the land that had been given to it by the Taino people who had, uh, 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 upon whom uh, genocide had been uh, uh, imposed and uh, uh, characterized ourselves with this name of this land, of this dispossessed, uh, uh, murdered population. And so in many ways, uh, 
this population lived uh, in us, in the struggle. And in many ways, we see the embryo of the uh, uh, emergence of, the, of, a, of a reconsolidated African nation uh, uh, coming from a process that was designed to separate Black people from, and did in fact separate African people from each other from all around the world. We come to this island and we have this revolutionary process that is initiated on this island. And in this island uh, where there might have been different groups of people, we saw uh, again uh, the emergence of the, of the incipient uh, African nation uh, that is uh, growing, uh, that is uh, uh, increasingly moving to achieve greater definition. Uhuru. So that was Chairman Omalia Shetela at a uh, webinar called Haitians at the Border, U.S. out of Haiti down with colonialism. And uh, that was covering the situation that, that happened in Texas. If you want to find that webinar, it is available on YouTube. So that's the chairman just summing up that this is part of what the chairman has called the colonial mode of production. So I wanted to, to, to see what, what you thought about that, Chairwoman. I think that was a very beautiful and inspiring quote from Chairman O'Malley Shetela, and one that sets the context for what the chairman calls the Haitian front of the overall African revolution. And it also puts forward, as we said earlier, one of the absolute, if not the absolute greatest revolution in the world. It was the first one. It was the first one of Africans fighting for their freedom, defeating the colonizer under a brutal regime and it was inspiring and opened up its shores to not only African people, but oppressed people everywhere. Wow. It's, it's, just, it's just really inspiring, the legacy of, of the Haitian Revolution. And I know we've had episodes about the, the power of, of the Haitian Revolution uh, before, and, and we, we need to go on having more because it's something that isn't well understood enough at all. In, in the public, just you know, that, like you said, that, that this was long before the Russian Revolution, and it was so much really deeper than the French Revolution, certainly the American Revolution. That these were African people; these were the the, the real proletariat rising up against the colonial mode of production, and it sent uh, just an absolute shiver throughout the colonial world. I mean, this was the great fear of the slave master. Uh, ever after the, the Haitian Revolution was that there would be something like this again to threaten the entire social order. And um, yeah, it, it's it's very clear that the what we're talking about in this New York Times article is uh, France and the entire colonial world just punishing Haiti for yes. having the audacity to break out, to strike out for freedom. Um, so I was wondering, I, I know that there's this mm -hmm. this book by C.L.R. James, yes. right, called called the, the Black Jacobins. I was wondering if you could read us a little bit from that, just to preface this discussion. Yes, and, and I do want to do that because this book is, is not put forward enough, The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James, that sums up brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly, all of the class forces and the different sectors who were, were fighting and, and just the, the incredible struggle of the African working class, the poor and oppressed, the enslaved to lead and to win this revolution. So I'm just gonna read a little bit of the introduction 
to the first edition of the Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James. In 1789, the French West Indian colony of San Domingo supplied two-thirds of the overseas trade of France and was the greatest individual market for the European slave trade. It was an integral part of the economic life of the age, the greatest colony in the world, the pride of France and the envy of every other imperialist nation. The whole structure rested on the labor of a half a million enslaved Africans. In August 1791, after two years of the French Revolution and its repercussions in San Domingo, the slaves, the Africans, revolted. The struggle lasted for 12 years. The Africans defeated in turn the local whites and the soldiers of the French monarchy, a Spanish invasion, a British expedition of some 60,000 men, and a French expedition of similar size under Bonaparte's brother-in-law. The defeat of Bonaparte's expedition in 1803 resulted in the establishment of the African state of Haiti, which has lasted to this day. Very powerful. So I wanted to, I wanted to read actually some of what was in the New York Times and to just understand that it is in there because of the resistance of African people and in particular because the leadership of Chairman O'Malley Chatella, who over and over again has fought for and put forward Africans of Haiti and the significance of the African Revolution of Haiti and of course around the world and given it that context and fought for the understanding of colonialism and parasitic capitalism, colonial capitalism, and you know just what, what this means for, for Europe resting on a foundation of the oppression of African people. The chairman has fought for this, has talked about it, struggled about it, and put programs and campaigns in the world over and over again for the last 50 years to force this to the surface has built the institution called the African Socialist International, which is African People's Socialist Parties organizations in Africa, in Europe, in the Caribbean, and, and throughout the Western Hemisphere in the United States as well. So the New York Times is able to do this because of the struggles made by Chairman O'Malley Chatella. And that being said, of course, he is not credited here, but I want to read some of this anyway, because it is powerful to see some of the documentation that, that they're talking about and able to put out, again, because of the incredible work of Chairman O'Malley Chatella and the African People's Socialist Party. So I'm just going to start at the beginning, and, and Jamie, we can stop and and discuss it and give some analysis to it, you know, as I go through. It starts by saying in Dondon Haiti, IET, as they say, Adrienne Prezant steps into the thin forest beside her house and plucks the season's first coffee cherries, shining like red marbles in her hands. The harvest has begun. Each morning, she lights a coal fire on the floor of her home in the dark. Electricity has never come to her patch of Northern Haiti. Incredible, no electricity 
in the year 2022 for the people of Haiti because all of their wealth and their riches has fed France, has fed the United States. She sets out a pot of water, fetched from the nearest source, a mountain spring sputtering into a farmer's field. Then she adds the coffee she has dried, winnowed, roasted, and pounded, pounded into powder with a large mortar called a pylon, which she was taught as a child. Coffee has been the fulcrum of life here for almost three centuries since enslaved people cut the first French coffee plantations into the mountainsides. Back then, this was not Haiti, but Saint-Domingue, the biggest supplier of coffee and sugar consumed in Parisian kitchens and Hamburg coffee houses. The colony made many French families fabulously rich. It was also, many historians say, the world's most brutal. Ms. Prezant's ancestor put an end to that, taking part in the modern world's first successful slave revolution in 1791, establishing an independent nation in 1804, decades before Britain outlawed slavery or the Civil War broke out in America. But for generations after independence, Haitians were forced to pay the descendants of the former slave masters, including the Empress of Brazil, the son-in-law of the Russian Emperor Nicholas I, Germany's last imperialist chancellor, and Gaston de Galifet, the French general known as the butcher of the commune for crushing an insurrection in, in Paris in 1871. The burdens continued well into the 20th century. The wealth of Mrs. Prezant's ancestors, coaxed from the ground, brought wild profits to, for a French bank that helped finance the Eiffel Tower, Credit Industriale et Commerciale, and its investors. They controlled Haiti's treasury from Paris for decades, and the bank eventually became, became part of one of Europe's largest financial conglomerates. Haiti's riches lured Wall Street too, delivering big margins for the institution that ultimately became Citigroup. It elbowed out the French and helped spur the American invasion of Haiti, one of the longest military occupations in United States history. And I just want to say that that was in 1915 and nobody talks about that. That is barely in the history books today. Wow. It's, that's really interesting. You know, when you think of longest U.S. military occupations, you might think of, I don't know, Afghanistan, Afghanistan. maybe Iraq, maybe Vietnam even. But we don't, we don't think of, of Haiti. This is a, a very repressed history. That's right. And, you know, it says Haiti's riches lured Wall Street, but Wall Street was built on the stolen labor of African people, literally resting on a cemetery, a burial ground of 20,000 African people that literally lay under Wall Street. Wall Street is literally built on the backs of African people. Right, yeah, the, the US is, is no stranger to uh, parasitism. That's right. Um, so to continue in this article, it says many like Ms. Présent's husband, Jean-Pierre-Louis Balsain, 
can't read, never having, quote, sat on the school bench, as the Haitian Creole saying goes. All six of the couple's children start at school, but none finish. Given the steep fees charged in Haiti to go to school, where the vast majority of education is private because the country never built more than a tiny public school system. There is nothing here, said Mr. Valsan, who is losing his eyesight, but can't afford to visit a specialist. Our children have to leave the country to find jobs. He used the term you often hear in Haiti, mise. More than poverty, it means misery, violence, tragedy, hunger, underdevelopment. These bywords have clung to Haiti for more than a century. Kidnappings, outbreaks, earthquakes, the president assassinated, this time in his bedroom. And just to interject, it's that mise, that, that misery that is summing up what the chairman is calling the colonial mode of production. This is the way all wealth has been brought to Europe and to the United States and to, to white people as a whole who, who are the colonizers, the, 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 the colonial nation. Yeah, I think it's, it's just a, such a poignant way to describe it too. This mise misery, um, it's it, it's it's hard to get your head around the the suffering induced by colonialism, especially when you've grown up on the other side of it and you come to take the absence of hunger, of constant violence, of a lack of uh, basic infrastructure. We we take that for granted in in right. the white world, and and we can take it for granted because we've lived at the expense of uh, African people, such as in Haiti. Yes. So the article continues, how is it possible, many ask, that Haiti shares an island with the Dominican Republic with its underground subway system, healthcare coverage, public schools, teeming resorts, and impressive stretches of economic growth? But I, I do want to say that even so, you know, just Haiti has been brutalized economically by everything that France in particular and the United States have done to it. But I just want to mention that the Dominican Republic is a country of more than 10 million people. And currently, 40.4% of Dominican Republic's people live in poverty. And 10.4% live in extreme poverty versus Haiti, which has 59% of people living in poverty, which is, you know, that's way underestimated. I mean, the, the, the poverty of Haiti is, is back practically 90%. But in any case, Dominican Republic is not in a great, it is a colony too. Yeah. But it is one that, that the ruling class has endowed with certain uh, resources so that, so that Europeans and North Americans can go there on holiday whenever they want. Yeah, it just, it just shows how extreme the, the colonial oppression of, of Haiti has been, even within the colonized world, it, it is the ultimate colony. And, you know, just to continue on this article, it's saying that to continue corruption is the usual explanation for answering this question, why is Haiti so impoverished? And now, not without reason, it says, Haiti's leaders have historically ransacked the country for their own gain. Legislators have spoken openly on the radio about accepting bribes and oligarchs sit atop lucrative monopolies, paying few taxes, 
Transparency International ranks Haiti among the most corrupt nations in the world, but another story is rarely taught or acknowledged. The first people in the modern world to free themselves from enslavement and create their own nation were forced to pay for their freedom yet again in cash. And I just want to say that it angers me in a way that they would even bring in the question of, quote, Haiti's corruption, because clearly anybody that's in Haiti is there because the U.S. wants them there. They they put Papa Doc and Baby Doc there as um, that's what they wanted. They were the father and the son for years and years ruled Haiti to the benefit of U.S. exploitation and 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 um, parasitic wealth gained at the expense. And of course, there is neo-colonialism. This is what what the chairman has has summed up for um, for many years, for a long time. That under nominal independence, when in fact a colonized country is still controlled by by a European or 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 the U.S. imperialist power, um, that there is a level of petty bourgeois, you know, traders of, of the same nationality who are selling out their people in order to aid, I would say, by the U.S. and by um, imperialism to maintain the same domination over the people that existed prior to their independence. This is what neocolonialism is. It's created by the U.S., it's maintained, it's built, they pay the people well. It goes on not only in Haiti, but all throughout Latin America, the Caribbean, Africa, everywhere that the U.S. maintains, and the Middle East, everywhere that the U.S. maintains its domination economically, sucking the blood of the people, Believe me, it's got hand-picked people, um, traders, neo-colonialists in there, carrying out and you know just um, using the whip and the violence of the U.S. Uh, domination and of colonialism over their own people. This is this is how the U.S. rules. This is what it is. You know, I really agree with that. I appreciate you pointing that out. Um, I, I had to take pause at this section of the article, too. I think that technically, I, I believe I've heard Chairman Amalia Chatella point this out before. We can't really call neocolonialism corruption, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. Mobutu in, in the Congo. Who was one of the richest people in the, in exactly, the world. Exactly. Or, well or Papa, paid. Right. Or, or Papa Doc and Baby Doc. In Haiti, they're carrying out the will of imperialism, of colonialism, of the of the white ruling class, and of course, they have to pay their stooges to do that. So it's doing exactly what colonialism wants it to do. It's not really some corruption from the purpose. That's what neocolonialism is supposed to do. It's it's a function of the whole colonial system. And then the other thing is that every time, like for instance, Aristide, right? Mm-hmm. When Talks we have, about him. Yeah. And, and when we have a, a, a principled um, leader in, in Haiti who's actually trying to serve the people, what happens? The U.S. and France and the, and the colonial powers come in and, and take him out. So That's right. I mean, that's, that was true of, of Saddam Hussein in Iraq or, or Gaddafi in Libya, you know, any place where, where the, the leader is attempting to, even on a limited level, stand up and say, no, resources are going to the people, 
they're gone. They're out. You can just count the days until that's going to happen. Right. So let me go on here. So to continue with the article, it says 21 years after Haiti's revolutionary heroes declared their country's independence, swearing to die before being put back in chains or living under French domination again, a squadron of French warships equipped with some 500 cannons loomed off to Haiti's coastline. The king's envoy, the Baron of Macau, issued a daunting ultimatum, hand over a staggering sum in reparations to Haiti's former slave masters or face another war. So outrageous, 21 years later, it's incredible. The Haitians had ample reason for alarm. Two decades earlier, Napoleon had tried to destroy them, sending one of the largest expeditions of warships ever dispatched by France with his brother-in-law at the helm. The Haitians won and declared independence. Napoleon lost more troops than he did at Waterloo and withdrew. But rich French colonists continued to press to reconquer the territory, and they found another sympathetic ear when the Bourbon monarchy returned to power. One minister of the Navy, a former colonist and prominent defender of slavery, even drafted a new plan to put Haitians back in bondage or crush them with still a larger army. No country could be expected to come to Haiti's defense. The world powers had frozen it out, refusing to officially acknowledge the independence. American lawmakers in particular did not want enslaved people in their own country to be inspired by Haiti's self-liberation and rise up. So Haiti's president, eager for the trade and security of international recognition, bowed to France's demands. With that, Haiti set another precedent. It became the world's first and only country where the descendants of enslaved people paid reparations to the descendants of their masters for generations. It is often called the independence debt, but that's a misnomer. It was a ransom. The amount was far beyond Haiti's meager needs. Even the first installment was about six times the government income at that, that year based on official receipts documented by the 19th century Haitian historian Beaubrun Ardouin. But that was the point and part of the plan. The French king had given the baron a second mission to ensure the former colony took out a loan from young French banks to make the payments. This became known as Haiti's double debt the ransom and the loan to pay it, a stunning load that boosted the fledgling Parisian international banking system and helped cement Haiti's path into poverty and underdevelopment. According to Ardoin's records, the bankers' commissions alone exceeded the Haitian government's total revenues that year. And that was only the beginning. The double debt helped push Haiti into a cycle of debts that hobbled the country for more than 100 years, draining away much of its revenue and chopping away its ability to build the essential institutions and infrastructure of an independent nation. Generations after enslaved people rebelled and created the first Black nation in the Americas, their children were forced to work, sometimes for little or even no pay for the benefit of others, First the French, then the Americans, then their own dictators. 
two centuries after French warships blew their terrifying cannons from Port-au-Prince's harbor to celebrate the debt, the echoes from that moment still wash across the country in its slums, bare hospitals, crumbling roads, and empty stomachs, even in the countryside, once considered the most lucrative and productive in the world. Yeah, I want to stop there, Jamie, because that is very dramatic in the, co- in, in the situation of, of Haiti. And Haiti is constantly slandered as the poorest, the poorest nation in the world, you know, just in every way degraded and slandered. And it is a, it is a country of, of incredible resistance that still goes on today. I mean, demonstrations and just the fight of the people for, for freedom and liberation and the pride that Africans of Haiti have in their history of this resistance and of this incredible revolution. But the fact is that it is, it is dramatic, it is profound, but it is not different than what the U.S. does anywhere with, with African and colonized people, including Africans and indigenous people inside the U.S. The same thing where it conquers them, it, it colonizes them, which means the occupation by a foreign and alien state power of a whole people for profit for the colonizer. You know, and whether it's the fact that indigenous people in the U.S., those that survived the genocide that was perpetrated also against the indigenous people of Haiti um, here in the U.S. live on, on reservations and are the most impoverished sector or population within U.S. borders, or whether it's African people here inside the U.S. whose poverty and uh, criminalization and, and the police violence and all the conditions that African people face here, same thing, blames them for their conditions. But it is, in fact, colonialism here inside the borders of the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's such a chilling and and uh, upsetting portrait that's painted of, of what happened in this article after the revolution. That and and I think it's it's appropriate that it says it, it was called the independence debt, but that is a misnomer. It was a ransom, you know, yes, just just yes. Pu- pulling up with these warships and saying, "Pay us for liberating yourselves, or we will attack you with the full mm-hmm. force." Of our military, and this is after many long years of of heroic battles. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and uh, it's it's just so depraved on the part of the French, uh, but it also I think is revealing of of what the mode of production is. Mm-hmm. Which this is all it can do. It's not like France could say, "Okay, we lost the war. I guess we'll figure something else out." Like this is all this system knows. Uh, to do is is to live through through pillage and and just the worst kind of violence that that uh, human beings are capable of. Right, and you know, just to continue, I'm going to continue a little bit further down. The article continues saying we found that Haitians paid 560 million dollars in today's dollars, but that doesn't nearly capture the true loss. If, if that money had simply stayed in the Haitian economy and grown at the nation's actual pace over the last two centuries, rather than being shipped off to France, 
without any goods or services being provided in return, it would have added a staggering $21 billion to Haiti. Yeah, well, it's, it's just, it's so offensive because we hear it so much, I think. Yeah. It's, it's one of those white lies in this society is that somehow uh, colonized people, African people share a certain uh, portion of the blame for their mm-hmm. own conditions. Exactly. Right. right. For perspective, the $21 billion is bigger than Haiti's entire economy in 2020. The Times calculated the impact of the double debt alone, the reparations to colonists, and the initial loan to pay them. But Haiti's troubles didn't end there. The double debt helped set off a cascade of privation, budgetary shortfalls, and onerous foreign loans that shaped the country into the 20th century and beyond. Though Haiti's government made the last payments connected to its former slaveholders in 1888, the debt was far from settled. To finish paying it off, Haiti borrowed from other foreign leaders, lenders, who in league with a few self-serving Haitian officials, indifferent to their people's suffering, laid claim to a significant share of the nation's income for decades to come. Depleted after decades of paying France, Haiti took out even more loans after that. By 1911, $2.53 out of every $3 Haiti took from coffee taxes, its most important source of revenue went to paying debts held by French investors, according to Gusti Clara Gaillard and Alain Tournier, Haitian historians whose accounts are consistent with ledgers found in the diplomatic archives in suburban Paris. That left precious little to run a country, much less build one. In some years of the United States occupation, which began in 1915, most most of Haiti's budget went to paying the salaries and expenses of the American officials who controlled its finances, then to providing health care to the entire nation of around 2 million people. Even after the Americans relinquished fiscal control in the late 1940s, Haitian farmers were living on a diet that was often close to the starvation level, United Nations officials reported. As few as one in six children went to school. Debt still shrouded the country. In the 1940s, Haitian children lucky enough to attend school, were asked to bring coins to class to finish paying the avalanche of loans that had weighed on their nation since its infancy. Little of this history is recognized by France. The reparations Haitians were forced to pay their former masters for generations are not covered in French schools, researchers say. When a Haitian president began loudly raising the subject, the French government scoffed and tried to squelch it. In 2003, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, a former priest who became the first democratic elected president after decades of dictatorship, launched a campaign demanding that France repay the money it had extracted. With television ads, street banners, and a legal team putting together the, the elements of an international lawsuit, the French government responded by assembling a public commission to study relations between the two countries, but quietly instructed it not to say a word in favor of restitution. Thierry Bouchard, the French ambassador to Haiti at the time, recently told the New York Times in an interview. 
the commission dismissed Mr. Aristide's claims as the ploys of a demagogue and portrayed the independence debt as a treaty between Haiti and France, making only passing mention of the French warships looming off Haitian's coast to enforce the demand in an annex to a 2004 report. A month later, the French government helped remove Mr. Aristide from power, saying it was trying to prevent Haiti, which was heaving with turmoil from spinning into civil war. But while French officials have long said that the restitution claim was not the reason for Mr. Aristide's ouster, Mr. Burkhead acknowledged that it was probably a bit about that too. I mean, that's ridiculous. It was completely about that. Mm-hmm. It would have set a precedent for many other countries, he said. So, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a problem for a colonial nation. Um, you, you, you can't, you can't have a little bit of reparations in this system, which I think is, you know, part of, part of why, like in the African people's socialist party, the chairman always says that uh, reparations is a revolutionary strategy because ultimately the system can't, can't afford to make restitution. This is its lifeblood. This is how it has always sustained itself. Um, Yes. Yeah. Wow. I think that was just, just stunning statistics here. Like, uh, one, one thing that caught my eye was when, when it said, uh, in some years of the United States' occupation, which began in 1915, more of Haiti's budget went to paying the salaries and expenses yes. of the American officials who controlled its finances than to providing health care to the entire nation of around 2 million people. It's, it's just so morally outrageous. That you, you you have these these bankers these colonial officials just lining their pocketbooks at the literal expense of uh, Haitian of African children's lives, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's it's unconscionable. Well, and and that occupation went until 1934, which is about the time that that Papa Doc was installed. So mm-hmm. they had you know. They didn't need an occupation anymore. Papadoc you know, founded the, what was called the Tonton Matkut, which was a death squad that terrorized the people and you know, just made them live in fear. And then he was followed by his son called Baby Doc, Duvalier, and so on and so on. You yeah. know, this just continued. And Aristide was one of the few, if the only one, who has ever raised the right of African people of Haiti to be free and to have their resources returned. And and raising it got him overthrown. That's right. Um, and, and, you know, I, we're, we're going to have to come back to this. Penny, yes. But, but I, I know one thing we're going to get to is how that, that occupation by the United States started with essentially just more armed robbery. The, the, the U.S., mm-hmm. the Marines just went right in and looted. Right. Looted the treasury of the gold, just stole it. And and then stayed around and, and bas- basically reintroduced direct white colonial slavery to the Africans in in Haiti. I mean, just just horrendous barbaric behavior um, that they they gleefully engaged in. Yeah. So let's continue on our next podcast to talk about this. Go into some of the documentation of how. Um, the money went to to France and to the French banks and to Wall Street, and to continue with some information 
um, understandings of her own, because this article does not talk about what the Clinton Foundation did as well. And where is that money after the earthquake of, of 2010? That sounds great. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me, Chairwoman Penny Hess, for this first half of our analysis of this New York Times article, The Ransom, The Root of Haiti's Misery, Reparations to the Enslavers. Thank you for tuning in to White Lies Shattered. We'll see you next time for part two. You're listening to Reparations in Action. This has been an episode of Reparations in Action, the White Lies Shattered series, a biased podcast of white solidarity with black power. My name is Jamie Simpson. This episode was engineered by Marcel Marius, who also composed our theme music. The show is researched and produced by Penny Hess, Jesse Neville, and Lisa Watson from the Black Power 96.3 FM studio in St. Petersburg, Florida. A shout out to Akile Anayi and DJ Eddie Maltzby, as well as the entire Reparations in Action team, Sandra Forrest, Johan Bedingfield, Amanda Carlozzi, Kyle Weiss, Marissa Ricchetti, Ali Aiello, Alana Woods, Declan Keller, Hallie Murray, and Sarah Ritterspock. If you liked what you heard today, you can go to Apple Podcasts and rate this podcast. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, please email them to us at ria at blackpower96.org. Special thanks to the African People's Socialist Party's Chairman Omali Yeshitela, without whose leadership and theory of African internationalism, none of the understandings presented on reparations in action would be possible. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week.